Hey everyone, welcome to the Friendly Podcast. This is Kevin. I'm a manager and producer here at Friendly. Friendly is a design studio that started in England and now our team stretches across the world in six different countries. If you'd like to learn more about our company and what we do, you can check us out at friendly.studio and there's a way for you to get in contact there. The sponsor of today's episode is .grid.co, providers of premium dotted notebooks, desk pads, and desk accessories. Use code FRIENDLYSTUDIO for 10% off everything in their store. Today on the Friendly Podcast, we have Scott and versus Scott. Thanks so much for being with us. No problem. Great to be here, Kevin. Cool. So Scott, I wondered if you could just kind of tell people what you've been up to for the, like the last five years or so. A great question. Uh... I lose track of time these days, it seems. So let me jump back briefly. So, you know, my career in general has bridged these gaps between the worlds of product and marketing um, in this, you know, realm of what I would call and many call growth. Um, You know, that for me has meant where more recently I ran the growth team at a small startup seed stage uh, when I joined a company called Breeze where we were basically building a modern day taxi fleet model for Uber and Lyft drivers. This is like the peak shared economy time, um, probably like, you know, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there. And uh, joined the company to run the growth team, small small team at the time. We raised our Series A from QED and Upfront, uh, sat on the exec team there. It was a really fun experience. Uh, went through the highs and the lows of that business, really ultimately uh, had to get acquired as part of sort of a you know pivot and a new approach to what we wanted to do with the existing tech we built. So we were acquired by Ford in the end uh, and launched what amounted to be a, a slightly different business called uh, Canvas that was basically a subscription alternative to car ownership fitting between a lease and a loan and a, and a rental. You know, the idea being like, what if you want a car for some medium period of time and you don't want to commit multi, multiple years uh, to a vehicle? So we started building that product out. And through all of that, we did a ton of research trying to figure out what, you know, car buying psychology is just so obscure. And uh, we had to do a lot of market research and customer research to try and figure out where we fit in, who we were serving, how we serve their needs. And uh, how we position the product and package and price things. And it was a lot of work to figure out. And luckily, we had some great people internally that taught me a lot about research there. That was kind of my primer on all of that. Um, and then I uh, left post-acquisition to go to Envision. Uh, I had been a user. I was a big fan of the product and uh, ultimately wanted to go somewhere with a little bit more you know, product-led growth built into the product itself. Um, I I was hired on to run the self-service business uh, when I was brought in. So that was a big chunk of the business, probably about 50% in terms of revenue at the time when I joined. And then, uh, uh, you know, we expanded that quite a lot. But then really my role evolved into owning just the top of the funnel for uh, Envision for both the self-serve and enterprise businesses. Uh, Really exciting time there. Learned a lot about selling into product teams. uh, And you know, really loved the design world, but then I ended up leaving Envision about a year or so ago to start exploring my own ideas and uh, do some consulting work alongside that. And I was exploring ideas originally in the world of kind of remote work because Envision was fully remote. We had about 800 people at one point. 
no offices. That's nuts. And um, yeah, it was like, I think we we're the biggest at one point, um, but it was, it was a wild time. And so ultimately we, uh, I saw a lot of things that I thought were worth fixing, but I went down that journey and COVID hit, you know, and I think my, my information advantage was gone. And I ultimately, I think I found myself just not super excited about that problem space. Uh, in the end, when I was like thinking about selling to people ops teams and things like that, it just wasn't really, really hitting for me. And uh, I joined a program called On Deck to really accelerate my exploration. And that led me down this path of the world of user insights and user research. It was a problem that I had been seeing over and over again at companies that I was consulting for, working with. And, uh, and it was sort of like, why user research or really just getting a deeper understanding of your users is part of my process when it comes to product and marketing work. Uh, it's probably part of most everybody's process. Uh, but most teams I would work with would not do the necessary work to understand their customers and their users that would help them make better decisions around how do we grow this business? How do we think about the customer journey and positioning the product and shipping the right features or pricing and packaging? And and all of that was like, well, everybody kind of knows they should be doing it better. They want to do it, but why aren't they? Why don't they have this richer understanding of their users? Why isn't this better articulated so that they can take action on it? Um, and that's what led us down this path to build Muse was to try and solve some of those problems we were seeing in terms of the friction companies had in getting a richer, deeper understanding of their customers and their customers' needs. Can you give me an idea of like the time frame from the point that you first kind of had the idea of, I want to start this, I want to start my own company, to sort of like now getting it all up and running? What has that time frame been like? It was... You know, I had, I think, always had an itch to start a business. You know, I, I really started my career in finance. I worked in banking and private equity and did all of that. And uh, I found myself not really drawn to that world. And I think it was especially because I saw myself as more of a you know tinkerer and a builder in the end. Um, and I even started like a pretty you know, admittedly not very great <laughs> website to try and help college students get into finance jobs when I left that world. Um, and, you know, so for that reason, I think I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I realized, I think at the beginning there that that was not a business that I was interested in building, nor was I really equipped to do it. And that's why I went in-house. I chose a to, to tech companies, but I chose a path that was very different than most. I mean, I think most come out of that and they go, you know, you go to Google and Facebook and other, you know, tier one type tech companies. But uh, I chose a very different path, which was sort of like, I want to go to an early stage company. I want to see like the chaos of how this really works going zero to one or what are also those skills you need to go from zero to one, like acquiring your first customers and uh, ultimately taking a business and bringing it to market. Um, that was where I sort of started my tech career. And that was something that I wanted to do because I think I wanted to build the skills necessary to start my own thing. Uh, always kind of in the back of my mind. And so I had different inflections in my career, like for example, before joining Envision, where I was thinking about like, maybe this is the time, but then Envision fell on my lap and I was like, all right, well, I guess it's not the time yet. And as I left Envision, I was really deliberate about trying to be like, look, this is a really good time. Don't just jump into something. Let's try and start, you know, give it give it a really sh real shot of it, like really exploring ideas and trying to see if there's something ex that excites me uh, in, in, in the world of tech. And, um, that 
that was a, that part of the process. I mean, I was really exploring ideas for the better part of, I'd say, you know, nine months before I really settled on something that was like, wow, this feels like a problem that is really resonating and worth solving. Um, so overall, many years, I've always had it in my mind. You know, I think it wasn't something that just sort of was like, oh, I'm going to start something now. But that opportunity and then finally going deep on it was really only in the last, yeah, nine to 12 months. I mean, it was nine months till we got to Muse, but I think, you know, that's all in more than a year now since I started that journey. Can you tell me what it's been like to try and get funding? I know you're in Silicon Valley, so I'm imagining that some connections have been kind of like straightforward and easy, but I'm still imagining that uh, a lot of things have been quite difficult. And there's a lot of people out there probably listening, thinking, oh, I've got this idea. Who do I know? Like, how do I know who to go to? Where do I go? Is it, is it websites? You know, am I going to be sending emails? Is it making phone calls? Or how does that all happen? It certainly is easier if you are like in the Silicon Valley Bay Area area or New York or any of these other markets that have like a huge uh, investor hub. Though I think remote has shifted things a lot in the last 12 months um, in a good way. You know, like the exodus from the Bay Area and like to other parts of the United States. It's like, I mean, it's certainly happening, but San Francisco and places like New York are not going anywhere. Uh, and I think it's just a great distribution that's occurring, which is helpful for broader the broader society, which will be make things more accessible, more opportunities accessible to people that didn't have them before, things like that, like new tech hubs created. I mean, I think that's gonna be great. Miami, you know, I look forward to visiting there. Uh, so, you know, there's ultimately, I think it's becoming more democratized in some sense, which is good. Uh, First for everybody. But when it comes to finding investors and how you think about that, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily quote unquote easy uh, in our, you know, initial round of fundraising here. Uh, it's always going to be a roller coaster of uh, just like highs and lows and yeses and nos, frankly. And with that, I think of just any approach to investment is no different than like an approach to sales and or marketing like you're building a pipeline of people you are trying to find ways to you know appeal to them and get them to move through the pipeline and you are then trying to close them um now your ability to do all those things can be dependent on your network sure but sometimes it can also just you can you can you have to just try a lot harder at the early stages of the funnel where you try to get them on the phone in the first place or prove your worth when you don't have a you know network supporting you somebody introducing you to that investor and so when i when i think about people that aren't in a position to uh as easily get in front of some of these people uh as these investors i'd say you know there's plenty of resources online like nfx has useful resources uh, like VC guides has like resources on super angels and things like that. But all these sort of places where you can look people up. Um, there's also some tools I found online that I can't remember the names of, but that they're helpful in finding investors and sort of saying like filter for what stage they invest in and all that stuff. You can source just like the first things, first things first is source a list of target people. There were plenty of people that I was not connected to that I reached out to eventually either cold or through some introduction in my network that uh, I ended up getting uh, in, 
a meeting with because like I just created this list and then I tried to find a way in. And that was the next step in the process. So it's like, here's my target list. I built that based on a variety of inputs, the way the industries they invest in. I know they tweet about stuff in my network. They invested in, or in my domain. They invested in a company in a related or adjacent space. Uh, and I saw that on Crunchbase. And I created a list of hundreds of people, super angels, angels, uh, you know, in, investors, et cetera, that made sense. And then I started indexing things like who's my best intro if I have one. Um, and I think that like you doing that, you can see how far you can get. You might be surprised. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, I think it's all about the next phase is simply how you, if you don't have a connection, try to convince that person to talk to you. And I think that's just through also really genuine, non, not scalable ways that you find an interest or a mutual, in, like a some sort of angle with somebody. So did they type, they write something or tweet something or uh, talk about something that is related to the way you see the world or, you know, that it makes that makes you think they're interested in what you'll be doing, like reference that stuff. And uh, I think ultimately it's, it's all about you. Un it, it unfortunately takes a ton of time and there's no real great shortcuts, I would argue, to doing that. I mean, I've only done this once, but that's how we did it. And I, you know, it takes a lot of time. It was like a full-time job for multiple weeks. And I think that that's the key though, is just to treat it like a pipeline and move down through people, down through the pipeline as you try to use these strategies or tactics as introductions or, uh, you know, finding your in through something they've said to actually genuinely try to form a relationship and get in front of them and, and say like, hey, I think you really will be interested in what we're doing and let me show you why. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk about the MVP. So for anyone who doesn't know, that stands for minimum viable product, not most valuable player if you're into sports, but can you get investment if you don't have the MVP in place? It's, it's a great question um, because I think people ask this I don't think I don't think that's the right question no offense Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I think I think what it is is um, the real question is basically like how do you get someone to believe in you enough to write you a check and the answer that that might be you need an MVP or you know if you go down the spectrum, it's like you have a live product that people are paying for and you have traction, right? That's like the ultimate, okay, my risk is I am de-risked. Uh, and that could though be as early stage as I just have an idea and I haven't quit my job yet. Um, ultimately, what you need to do is de-risk things for investors as much as possible. Now, if you happen to be the you know an engineer that graduated from computer science at MIT and you're an engineer at Facebook and you have an idea in a big space and you've told that story decently well in a presentation you're like I want to raise money to quit my job and I've got this co-founder and we're going to try and tackle this idea we just have some designs but that's it you probably can close that round pretty easily yeah you know in today's market but if you are somebody that has just no track record, like no, you don't have a lot of great mutual connections, you're just on paper for whatever reason, not somebody that like de-risks an investor's perspective um, on the opportunity, you are uh, gonna have to prove a lot more. And that's part of the formula. It's basically like, 
how you just need to find a way to get a, get them to enough conviction that they should believe you. And it can be easy or hard depending on your circumstances. And when we went out, we started fundraising basically right as we launched our alpha, which is pretty poor timing, which I can talk to, but like ultimately we were out in market with something. So we were further along than the idea stage and we were not far along enough in terms of traction. Uh, we don't have you know traction to point to and say, look, this thing is clearly working or whatever. We're like, we barely just launched. Um, so the answer is it depends. And I think that's the right way to think about it. And I think if you feel as though you're in a position where you're like, I just don't know, I'm not getting answers. I'm not getting, I'm not getting responses. I'm not getting investors to invest. You might have to move further down the journey. Um, or the other thing to consider, of course, is like maybe you're just not tackling something big enough. You haven't told that story well enough. But I think you learn that as you talk to investors. So I think that's less the issue. You just need to find a better way to position it there. It's more so de-risking things is often the bigger problem there. Yeah. Is it quite tricky managing the work-life balance? I'm imagining that being part of a startup is pretty demanding, pretty draining. How do you kind of juggle the two? It must be quite hard to get a good balance. Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. But um, it's, I mean, honestly, we've, we've only just started. Um, it's not going to get that much easier anytime soon. So I think it's got to be realistic for any person trying to start a business that you are going to be grinding for quite a while. And for that reason, you better, it can certainly cause challenges and relationships and other parts of your life. But ideally, you can balance that as best you can. But it's a very difficult thing to balance. You will find imbalance because, frankly, at the earlier stages, you're just fighting to survive, right? And you're trying yeah. to find your elbow your way in. And the, the market does not make that easy. Um, and so ultimately some things may may suffer for periods of time, but I think like you just have to have like honest conversation with yourself and anybody involved in your life to like try and make sure you're aligned on that. And, um, you know, we just got a puppy and I, I told my wife that she's a single mom right now. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly I try, to, I try to help out as best I can, but like it's challenging. It's a lot of work um, in terms of both dealing with that, but also dealing with the startup. And so um, you, the best thing you can do is like try to be more deliberate about your time that you spend that's personal. Um, and just know that when you're going into this, if you're going into it to try to find work-life balance, then you know that's that's not the right move. You you're going to be at it like it's going to be a slog for a long time. It's not glamorous. It is it is a real challenge. So um, if you're going to do that, you must recognize that for some period of time, things are going to be difficult in terms of things outside of work because you're going to need to put your heart and soul into this. And frankly, you should probably want to because if you don't, you may not be starting the right thing. Yeah. A question that I always love to ask people is how do you keep your mental health and your emotional health in check? I'm imagining working for a startup, the opportunity presents itself quite frequently to be completely stressed out. And how do you keep yourself in a good headspace? Two warm glasses of whiskey every night. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Sounds good. Um, it's a lot. It's tough. I've, I've definitely, on a personal level, not done as much, you know, I med I'm always big on trying to meditate or do yoga and whatnot. I've got into that in the last handful of years as I think every, you know, like <laughs> tech person, it's almost like a caricature of like, you know, the tech startup person so mindful and whatnot. But 
either way, I think it is it is good to do to be mindful, do practice, you know, healthy mindful practice uh, habits. That is, and um, you know, for me, I've yes, I've struggled to prioritize that stuff. Um, and what I personally have, how I've dealt with the challenges, and you know, maintain your sanity and all of this is that. You have to be very, you have to just disconnect from the sort of personal emotions of the whole thing, which is so difficult. It's very easy to say that, but to, um, you know, to just disconnect yourself in a sense of like, look, there are highs and lows and you want to experience those, um, especially the highs. They're so great. It's like a lot of fun. I mean, it will only get better or worse with time in terms of those fluctuations. Um, but I think that for, for for disconnecting, what I mean by that is that like you really have to find a way to not take everything personally. You know, and it's hard when you found a company; it is your child in some sense. And so, like, if somebody you know says that it's not that great or doesn't agree with you on things and thinks you're approaching something wrong, like you have to find a way to obviously like accept that feedback or, you know, internalize it, or maybe something doesn't go right. You thought you got an employee or something like that. And they rescind at the last moment, whatever it is, there's these highs and lows and you just have to disconnect from them a little bit. Uh, and I think that honestly, it's it maybe some personality types. It's like a lot harder to do, but you know, it might be like, you need more of a community to support you in some of this stuff, especially I'm personally not really like that. Um, but I think that being involved in communities can help a lot. And it has been helpful for me, like the community on deck for founders. Um, that has been a great community. And like, you're just kind of riding this stuff together, going through the shit storm together. Yeah. It's good to have somebody there that you can relate to um, or that can relate to you. And I think that's a really, that's the best thing that I've found so far is like have a group of people whatever it be, whether that's friends or like a community you join that you can like talk to and relate to through this journey. And it's especially helpful if you can talk to people that have founded something before, because yeah, you know, like they're gonna, it's just, it's good to talk it out. Like no one else can maybe is gonna get it quite like they do. And so having that group of people around you to talk to, that's a great way to de-stress and sort of like keep your sanity and be like, God, I can't, I can't believe this happened. Like, or like this person said this or whatever, something, something goes wrong or right. like. It's always good to have somebody there that you can talk to that gets it. So there's tons of these different communities now. I think like, you know, joining one or in general, having your own network of friends that you can tap into for that is really key. Awesome. That is perfect. Scott, last question I always like to ask people is where can we find you online? Where can we follow you? Yeah. Uh, you know, I try to use Twitter more these days. Lately, I've struggled with <laughs> with the fundraising, the business building, but I, uh, I'm at Hanford Scott at Twitter, on Twitter. Um, and otherwise, you know, LinkedIn, but like, you know, I don't really use LinkedIn <laughs> that much. Follow me on Twitter if you're, if you're interested. I post random things every once in a while, maybe a few memes here and there, but uh, otherwise, you know, feel free to reach out to me. You know, I'm always welcoming. Email is the best way to get in touch. You know, Scott at Hello Muse, it's pretty easy to guess. But, you know, you feel free to shoot me a note and I'm always happy to follow up with folks to hear more about like their thoughts on this process or journey or our product, frankly. Scott, thank you so much for being on the Friendly Podcast. Of course. Appreciate you having me, Kevin. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. 
Hey everyone, that's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. We would really appreciate it if you would consider subscribing and coming back next time for another episode. Thanks.